I can quit whenever I want. Anyone ever said this to you? Uh, Perhaps it was said in a playful manner, or perhaps it was said by someone who is deeply entrenched in a habit that is not good for them, something addictive. Uh, Perhaps you have said these words yourself, I can quit whenever I want. Uh, When someone says these things, there's a little bit of truth, usually, but while the person saying these words means to show they have control over their addiction, you might challenge the statement with, go ahead and prove it then, calling out the bluff. But the proof is in the pudding, I think, with a statement like that. I can quit whenever I want. And the truth is right there in the very phrase, isn't it? That people who say this don't want to quit, even if their particular addiction is a damaging one. That phrase is usually uttered by someone who, whether they realize it or not, is enslaved to one thing or another. Now, perhaps you've experienced this kind of slavery in your own life, whether it be bad habits, a secret sin on the internet, or some kind of substance abuse. Uh, there are many things in this world that can enslave. Well, in our text this morning, Paul addresses a kind of slavery as well. Uh, but it's different than what you might think. It's a slavery that the Galatians are tempted to put themselves in, a slavery that is dressed up in the costume of legalism, of a works-based salvation, something that we as Christians should be hyper-vigilant against. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Galatians 4, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 31. And if you're using a Bible uh, that you found underneath one of the chairs, you can find our passage on page 974, page 974. Uh, If you are visiting and you don't have a Bible at home that you can read on your own, feel free to just take one of the ones underneath the chairs as our gift uh, to you for free. We would love for you to have your own copy of God's Word because we believe that God has spoken to us by His Word, uh, that it is authoritative and without error in everything that it intends to communicate. So we would love nothing more than for you to have your own copy to read during the week. Uh, At this point in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's spoken to them at length about the dangers they're facing in considering the teachings of some Jews that came near them. Uh, Judging by the the way Paul speaks throughout the letter, the Galatians are at least tempted to follow these false teachers. Some of them may already have. We don't really know for sure. Uh, But Paul, with the concern of a spiritual father, attempts to correct the false teaching of the Jews so that the Galatians would not be led astray in their new faith. Uh, In today's verses, Paul concludes a series of arguments about the superiority of of justification by faith in Christ over and against works of the law. The situation is basically this. Uh, The Galatian Christians were young believers that Paul led to the Lord after preaching the gospel to them. They believed Jesus' death and resurrection served as payment for their sins to God, and that trusting in Jesus, their sins are forgiven, their eternities secure. Forgiveness being a gift from God to be received, not something to be earned. Then these Jews, or Paul calls Judaizers, came along, undermining the gospel that Paul preached, effectively saying, 
Jerusalem is the city of God. We are the people of God. To be included, you must follow our laws and our traditions. You must submit to the law. Uh, But part of the freeness of salvation is recognizing that the law has come to an end, that it is fulfilled in Christ and therefore is no longer part of God's covenant. The new covenant has arrived apart from the law. And so Paul concludes this argument that really stretches from chapter 3, verse 1, until the end of chapter 4 now, for why justification by faith is superior to law obedience. And in our text, he provides a historical illustration a prophetic proof text, and then a final explanation and application of their meaning. Uh, With that in mind, let me just uh, lead us in prayer before we read uh, our verses this morning. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, please give us insight uh, into Galatians 4 this morning. Encourage and equip us for ministry, we pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us by your word so that we would heed it and worship you in purity of heart. Uh, We ask these things in the name of Christ, so that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. Paul says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The main idea of these verses is that we should rejoice in the freedom we have in Christ and have no tolerance for false gospels. We should rejoice in the freedom we have in Christ, and have no tolerance for false gospels. Uh, That's the summary of, I think, everything that Paul teaches. Uh, Though there are exhortations and applications that uh, we can take from these verses, and this passage is just layered with history and theology piled on top of each other. Uh, So my goal is just to explain clearly what Paul's saying so that we can apply what he's saying in his context to our context today. Uh, And so in order to do that, I have three points for you. The first point is the slavery of the Old Covenant in verses 21 through 26. The slavery of the Old Covenant. Uh, That's what Paul is explaining in these verses. And he uses a very well-known story to illustrate his point. 
Uh, he does this by addressing Jews directly first in verse 21. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. So it's either the Jews themselves or the Galatians that are tempted to join them. Do you not listen to the law? And uh, right from the get-go, I should point out that Paul uses the word law in two different senses, senses in that one sentence. And so in the first one, he says he means the Mosaic law, the law that was given at Mount Sinai, meaning all the commandments and traditions. And then in the second mention of law, he simply means the scriptures more broadly. And we know that because he goes on to then quote from or refer to Genesis. So if I were to paraphrase what Paul is saying, he would say something like, you who desire to be under the laws of Mount Sinai, do you not listen to the scriptures? Do you not listen to your Bibles? And then he refers to this story in the book of Genesis, which is a very well-known story. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And anytime you see it is written in the Bible, it just means usually the person is quoting or referring to Scripture elsewhere. Um, but Paul's referring to a story that you can read in Genesis 16 through 17 and then in, verse, or, and then in chapter 21 about Abraham's first two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And it's a pretty fascinating story. I would encourage you to, to read it sometime on your own time. But many believe that Paul uses this example of these two sons because it was just so well-known at the time, especially among the Jews, and perhaps even was one of their arguments of, to the Galatians. Uh, their argument would have gone something like, the true people of God are the sons of Isaac, who des whose descendants were given the law at Mount Sinai. Therefore, if you want to be one of us, you Gentiles should submit to Mosaic law. But Paul is going to use the example of Ishmael and Isaac as a way to prove that God's covenant is dependent on his fulfilling his promises and not the people's obedience to the law. He does so by highlighting the fact that one of his sons was born of a free woman, that's Sarah, and then the other, Ishmael, was born to a slave woman, which is Hagar. The implication, of course, is that Ishmael born to Hagar, is born into the same status, slavery, while Isaac, born to Sarah, who is free, is born to her status of freedom and then an heir to everything that Abraham has. So to understand what Paul says in verse 23, you need to know how those events took place. <laughs> to summarize, God made a promise to Abraham when he was elderly that he would make a great nation from his descendants told him to go out and look at the stars, number them if you can, and so will your offspring be. Well, many years went by, uh, about 10 years perhaps, and Sarah was beginning to wonder how the Lord would bring this about. Sarah herself, who had been barren for many years, they knew they couldn't physically have kids, so she supposed perhaps uh, the Lord will do this through a servant of mine, someone else in the household of Abraham. So she offers her servant Hagar to Abraham uh, as a wife. Abraham goes into her and she conceives, and the result is Ishmael. And what we could say is that Sarah's actions or her works, according to the flesh, attempted to fulfill the promises of God, rather than waiting on the Lord to fulfill the promises to them. Uh, well, Sarah ends up being displeased with Ishmael, 
and Hagar, and uh, they send them away, Abraham and Sarah do, and that actually happens twice in chapter 17 of Genesis and in chapter 21 of Genesis. Uh, But here's the point. After waiting for so long, Sarah found God's promise difficult to believe. So she decided to set the conditions in which God's promise would be fulfilled. She tried to arrange the fulfillment of that promise through her servant, Hagar. And we could say that, therefore, Ishmael's birth was a result of the works of man. That's why it says he's born according to the flesh. It doesn't mean that Isaac uh, was conceived by the Holy Spirit like Jesus was. Uh, That's not what he's saying here. He's just simply saying uh, Sarah's and Hagar's works uh, mean that Ishmael was born according to the flesh. In contrast, the birth of Isaac, Sarah is now 90 years old and Abraham is 100 and Sarah has been barren for decades. When she overhears the Lord reassure Abraham that he will give Sarah and Abraham a child of their own, she laughs overhearing that. So there's two things that Paul's communicating. One is that the child born into the same status as the mother, and the other is that one is born according to the promises of God, and the other is born out of works of the flesh. And with that understanding, Paul uses those realities to provide an illustration, or what he calls an allegory, for the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Look again at verses 23 through 25. He says, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Just a few words about allegory in this sense. Um, This is the only time this word that Paul uses, allegoreo, is used in the entire Bible. But... This example of Paul saying we can interpret this as an allegory has been used by uh, some secular theologians to discredit the historicity of the Bible, meaning they have wrongly assumed, therefore, that these events might not be historical. When we read the Bible, we can just take everything like it's an illustration because we tend to think of allegory as uh, a made-up story like Pilgrim's Progress to kind of try to communicate some truths. But Paul does not mean to say that these events were made up, uh, nor does he mean to say that this is how you should interpret all of Scripture. He is simply saying, look, we can find an illustration in these events. Uh, I found Martin Luther's comments on Paul's use of allegory helpful here. Uh, He says, you know, a frame or a picture in a house is an ornament that makes the house look pretty, but the house's foundations have already been laid. So too here... Paul is providing an ornament after a series of arguments that he's already laid down in Galatians. Uh, He has already appealed to Abraham's righteousness before the law. He has appealed to the Holy Spirit's work in the Galatians' own lives and their experience of it, uh, and a number of other different things. So this here is simply Paul creating an illustration. Uh, So thank you for that brief aside. Now we will continue to move forward. Uh, we can make sense of Paul's historical example if we understand it as an illustration. Um, It would have been a point of pride for the Jews to say we're descendants of Isaac, 
which was true physically. However, when it comes to being under the law, Paul says that to be under the law is the same as being born into slavery. It's no different than Ishmael being born to Hagar. Just like Hagar's conception was a result of the works of man, so too is seeking your own righteousness by trying to follow the law and obey the law. Uh, I've returned to this explanation over and over again in this series through the book of Galatians. But to submit to the law is to submit to a works righteousness-based gospel. Uh, It is to trust uh, perhaps in Jesus plus your own works, plus obedience of the law. Uh, So we often say we're saved by grace through faith alone because what is threatened here is the idea that we're saved by grace through faith plus our own observance of the law. So anytime we're tempted to trust in our own goodness, we can say, we have departed from the gospel of grace. The gospel says instead that no one is righteous, that in Adam all have sinned, and so death reigns in all, but in Christ we have the gift of redemption. Christ's sacrifice brings justification for the sinner who believes in him and turns away from sin. The good news is only good because it does not depend on our own works. Uh, If it did depend on our works, uh, then we might last a little while, but would be eventually crushed in defeat. The Gentiles in Galatia came to faith in Christ and were justified before God apart from the law. So why then would they submit to it? Why would they leave the free gift of grace to become slaves to the law? Uh, For us today, we can ask ourselves, do we think that God has loved us because we're smart or because we've made good choices or we were raised in a good home or we grew up in the church? Do we think that God has loved us for any of these reasons? Dear friends, God's love is far more excellent than that. God does not love us because we are so great. He loves us because He is so great. He loves us even while we were sinners. These truths are important for how we are to approach God. Uh, So the Lord, if we uh, could use a common illustration, the Lord is not like a boss. He's not a boss God uh, that rewards good behavior and then punishes bad behavior. Some think that God relates to us this way, and then they strive and strive, hoping to be rewarded. You know, if you have a good week where you're in the Word each day and you're feeling like you're going to win Christian of the Month this year or this month. Conversely, they believe that if things are not going their way, it must be because God is not happy with them. Improper feelings of unworthiness turn into spiritual discouragement and distance from God. And I say improper feelings because this posture before God begins with thinking you were once worthy in the first place. And that's a miscalculation. Unworthiness is not a stop along the way on the journey. It is the starting line. That's where we begin when we approach God. Unworthy sinners, undeserving of His grace. God does discipline the ones He loves. But He does not demote or fire Christians. He doesn't relate to His people like a boss whose relationships with His employees is primarily based around performance. He relates to us as a father who does everything out of love and whose relationship to us will never change. 
Well, that's one way that some are tempted to relate to God in a way that focuses on your own works. Another way is to view God as a kind of recruiter, recruiter God. Some people view or treat God like he's a recruiter for the military, demanding that you be in peak physical condition with no serious health issues. People who look at God this way never approach God because they assume they'll be denied. They think this is kind of like a backwards legalism when you think about it. It assumes that you must be good, this good, (laughs) to catch the ride to heaven. It's true that one must count the cost to following Christ. There may be idols that you need to clear off the shelves of your life. But God's acceptance of you does not depend on your current spiritual health or your current performance. It's not as though God only enlists the strong and the weak have no chance of making the cut. It's actually the opposite. God uses the weak to shame the strong. He sends a shepherd boy to face a warrior champion. Friend, if you are here and you have never put your trust in Christ and you're tired of striving, desiring to feel acceptable by God, uh, then you have it backwards. Uh, The way to approach God is not to present yourself as best as you possibly can. It is to admit uh, your sinful nature to the core and to rest completely on Christ, who alone is perfect, who alone is is acceptable by God and who's offered himself as a sacrifice on your behalf. Friend, if that's you, let me just encourage you to consider to stop striving for your own and instead trust in Christ. Uh, Turn away from your sin and believe in him. Uh, If you have questions about what that might look like, uh, I would love to talk with you after the service. Trusting in ourselves or in our own works can have the result of mistaking God for one of these things. But the gospel is the remedy the right understanding of the way that God relates to us by His grace through Christ corrects these ways of thinking. And that's exactly what the Galatians needed. They needed Paul to remind them that to submit to the law is a form of trusting in themselves, trusting in their own deeds. It was to digress from freedom to slavery. Can you imagine how how foolish that would be? Someone breaking out of prison and then immediately turning around and missing the walls of the prison around them and desiring to go back rather than the fresh air. Simultaneously, this illustration of Sarah and Hagar, Paul is saying that the Jews who do submit to the law are not sons of promise, but in fact born into slavery, just like Ishmael was. So Paul summarizes this argument by saying plainly in verse 26, Hagar is Mount Sinai, the old covenant that gives birth to many sons of slavery, and she is the present Jerusalem. (laughs) That's a lot that Paul just said, but let me just try to summarize. And if you're taking notes, you can just write all these things out in a line. Hagar is to Ishmael, which is to slavery, which is to Mount Sinai, which is to the present Jerusalem in Paul's day, which would equal the Jews or the Judaizers. Contrasted with, in this passage, Sarah who is to Isaac, who is to freedom, who is to Jerusalem above, who is the Galatians. And that's Paul's way of saying the present Jerusalem 
In other words, the Judaizers who are attempting to give birth to sons of slavery by commanding you, the Galatians, to submit to their laws. Um, Notice those two different Jerusalems spoken of in that passage. Uh, You have the present Jerusalem, which is basically the Jews of the day, and then the Jerusalem above, Paul is speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, the way the Old Testament refers to Zion, the holy city, uh, heaven to come. Uh, This is how many of the New Testament authors refer to heaven. Uh, Well, one quick application for us from these verses. One is expect temptation to come. If you're a believer, expect temptation to come. Uh, Being free from slavery does not mean that you won't be tempted as the Galatians were to go back to slavery. Uh, The works of the flesh have their draw. They have their small and fading pleasure. But Christians are to constantly remind each other that Christ is so much better, so much more glorious than any of the little glories here on earth. When temptation does come, go back to the gospel. Remember what God has saved you from and remember what God has saved you to. He has not redeemed you to return to slavery. He has not redeemed you so that you would be continued to be enslaved by your sin. He's redeemed you to be in his service. Therefore, commune with him. Well, that's point one. Point two is the children of the promise, mainly looking at just verse 27. The children of the promise. Uh, Paul uses a Paul uses to differentiate children of slavery and children of promise, and then continues that illustration here in verse 27. But in verses 21 through 25, Paul emphasizes Hagar and slavery. But for the rest of the text, he's going to emphasize Sarah and freedom. Uh, You might have noticed uh, as you were going through this uh, that the Galatians likely hearing these things uh, might have been confused And that's, I think, why Paul explains in so many different kinds of illustrations the same summary thing that he's teaching, uh, that to submit to the law is slavery. But look at verse 27. It's a quotation from our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 54, verse 1. This is an amazing example of Paul's immense knowledge of the scriptures as well as the genius of the Holy Spirit. And as we read of these verses again, Just think about everything I've said about Sarah so far. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So Sarah, who was so confident in her barrenness that she laughed when she overheard the Lord promise to give her life in her womb. Baron Sarah, according to Isaiah 54, is better off with the promise of God than the one who has the false securities of this world. Paul's already illustrated how Isaac's birth was the better option because he was free and because it was a result of the Lord's divine intervention rather than the result of man's works. But the same is true when we compare the Old Covenant and the New. Those in the Old Covenant were to live by the commandments and do them, which Israel failed miserably at. 
Moses even said that they would fail when he gave them the law in Deuteronomy 28. Sure enough, when the people turn to idolatry, the kingdom splits. Eventually, the people are taken away into exile, into captivity. And it's from the exile in Babylon that Isaiah prophesies this verse to a people that have been divorced from their husband, the Lord. That's the context of Isaiah. Comfort to the people of God that he will still fulfill his promise to Abraham. But Israel as a people had become worse than Sarah, barren and desolate. Yet even in such a state, there is reason to rejoice, more reason than the one who has a husband. There's no earthly security in this life. But when the Lord is involved, there is no ultimate despair, no matter how desperate the situation. And for the Galatians, Paul's point is this. Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ and given to you. You are the children of the barren one. Believers in Jesus are the children of the promise. They are free. The Jews likely were trying to convince them of the advantages of their laws and traditions, but the gospel is the only thing that offers true freedom, which the Galatians had already found. And it's that freedom that Paul focuses on in the last paragraph of chapter 4. Application for us, promise trumps perspective. Promise trumps perspective. The one who is barren has more reason to rejoice than the one with a husband. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you may feel like your life is barren and desolate for a number of reasons. Uh, You could feel defeated by your sin. Uh, Perhaps you're tired of your station in life. Uh, You're single and you want to be married. You're sick and you won't get better. You feel spiritually dead inside and have no joy. Whatever barrenness you feel is a result of sin in the world and the sin in our hearts. But we worship a God who has promised to renew us and it in its entirety. In Christ, we can be confident that sin will not have the last laugh. Death has lost its sting. And we can look forward to an eternity of perfect union and peace with God. So when your heart is troubled and it's hard to trust God, here are some questions that you can ask yourself and reflect on. Is this thing that I want so badly something that God has promised me? Is this thing that I want so badly something that God has promised me? Another question. If not, can I trust that he has not promised it to me for a reason? Can I trust that he has not promised it to me for a reason? Another question you can ask is, are there reasons why God might withhold this from me? Are there reasons why God might withhold this from me? And then one more. How can God use my longing for this thing for his glory? How can God use my longing for this thing for his glory? Well, that's point two in our passage this morning. Third point from verses 28 through 31 is the freedom of the new covenant. Freedom of the new covenant. Paul brings his argument to a conclusion in these verses by saying what I've already said, that the Galatians are sons of freedom, true sons of the free woman, Sarah in the illustration from Genesis. 
Uh, you can submit to the law with your own works, but that would be akin to Sarah trying to accomplish the will of God through her works rather than trusting in his promise and uh, trusting in, in the Lord to bring his promise to fruition. Uh, Christ himself is the true promised child God provided. He's the seed of Abraham that blesses the nations through his gospel. And those who are born again by believing in Christ are given the right to become sons and daughters of Abraham. Uh, He said that in chapter 3. Understood properly, it makes less and less sense to adhere to the law, does it not? And how naive to think that by our own works we can gain the favor of God. But Paul goes a step further to apply these realities to the lives of the Galatians with one more parallel in verse 29. He says, Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Meaning uh, Ishmael somehow persecuted Isaac. And we don't exactly know what that persecution was that he was referring to. Um, I have a hunch that it was at the party that was held in Isaac's honor. Ishmael's laughing, and we don't know the context of why he's laughing, but uh, it was, it was uh, shameful to the extent that they wanted to expel them from the party. And so Paul calls the Galatians to do the same thing that Abraham and Sarah did at that time with Hagar and Ishmael, and he quotes Genesis 21, verse 10. In verse 30, Paul says to cast out the slave woman and her son because they will not receive the same inheritance as the free. Uh, There's really two two implications for the Galatians that I think we can directly apply to our lives today. The first is that we should expect opposition of some kind as believers. Expect opposition. For the Galatians, it was the Jews who made them feel second tier and pressured them to submit to their laws. But there will always be a voice in the world that puts pressure on you as a believer to believe something other than the true gospel. There's always going to be mockery and persecution because the world is at enmity with God. The world is against Jesus himself, who did no wrong to others, yet still was persecuted and killed. So you can imagine that as followers and those preaching the same message of victory over sin, calling people to repentance, would be treated similarly. Opposition can come from all kinds of angles and varying, in varying degrees. But brothers and sisters, know that the enemy would love nothing more than for the opposition he sends to cause you to question your faith or to trust in your own works. He would love for you to doubt God's grace, for you to be swayed by your emotions like a ship out at sea. That's the result of doubt, according to James 1.6. Instead, stand firm in the gospel of Christ, through whom we have the assurance of salvation, the manifestation of God's promise to save his people is Christ Jesus. Now, the second point of application is what Paul encourages the Galatians to do about the Judaizers. He says, cast them out like Hagar and Ishmael. Um, And I've just generalized this application with my main idea to simply say not to give an audience to false gospels, to not tolerate those who entertain the idea of salvation by works or anything that goes against salvation by grace through faith in Christ. As a church, we must keep our doctrine pure, 
Now, this is one of the reasons we have a statement of faith, why we exercise meaningful membership. The Bible teaches that uh, each gathering has the authority to proclaim the gospel. Uh, so we want to be sure that we exercise that authority well. Uh, when we bring those into membership, uh, we want to make sure they agree with the statement of faith and believe the same gospel uh, that we believe Scripture teaches. We understand that insofar as we understand our Bibles correctly, we will be free from the error of believing a false gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, we should conclude this section of Paul's letter with a reminder to rejoice in our salvation. Rejoice in the freedom that is found in Christ. Rejoice in the gospel that requires us to rest in his works rather than strive in our own. The truth is, apart from Christ, we couldn't quit whenever we wanted. In our sinful nature, if, we were, if it were not for God's grace and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we wouldn't want to quit. We would be forever enslaved to our sins, enslaved to try to gain our own righteousness by our works. But Christ has set us free, so live as one who is free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in the freedom that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to cherish the gospel, uh, to remind ourselves daily of your love for us and your grace towards us, our salvation, which is not a result of our works, lest we boast in them. Or rather, let us boast in Christ, our weakness which leads us to rely on Him. We pray these things in His precious name. Amen.